Thank you very much. Thank you indeed. Now then, Dr. Yes. Brosnan. Mm -hmm. the, the, the honorary doctor has come as a bit of a shock. It did in a way, yes. I thought someone was pulling my leg, really. But uh, lo and behold, here I am, a doctor of philosophy. An honorary doctor of philosophy it was a great one, indeed. I was very proud to receive it, you know, for a, a fellow who left school at 15 and really didn't uh, know where he was going in life to end up with such a, an accolade as that has to be uh, cherished. Uh, now, you left, when you left school, you began work actually as a commercial artist, I think. How long did it take you to discover acting for yourself? Um, the acting really came out of the blue. I mean, I'd been asked to be in, in school plays, and I declined. And uh, I was a pretty kind of shy person. I suppose I still have a certain sense of the reserve about myself, really. But uh, I started life as a commercial artist in Putney, and... Uh, I was good at drawing and one thing and another, but I always loved the pictures. I grew up in Navan and there was two cinemas, the Lyric and the Palace, and I used to go to the pictures there. And then when I went to, when I went to London in 1964, one of the first pictures I saw was Goldfinger. And I was bedazzled by the brilliance and the whole alchemy of film. And I never dreamt of being James Bond or even of becoming an actor. And then the next week I went to see uh, Lawrence of Arabia. And so I, I, a passion started for the movies and dreaming of pictures, and etc. And, uh, and one day when I was uh, hanging up my coat at Ravenna, studios in Putney. I was talking to a fellow from the photographic department and he said, well, I belong to this arts lab and it was called the Oval House Theatre and uh, it was about 68, 69 and it was at the height of the music of the time and the arts and I went in the doors on one winter's evening and really never looked back. I found a place for myself. I found a, a certain kind of uh, a sanctuary, I call it. Uh, I was suddenly with writers and artists and we were doing workshops and I uh, fell in love with acting. And it really wasn't acting because it was more of a, as, it was, as I say, it was an arts lab. And I used to go there every Tuesday and Thursday and then it became every Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday and eventually I gave up the job and I joined a theatre company there called the Oval House Theatre Company and we were doing theatre and education and thus began this kind of career that I've got. Let me just bring you back, uh, bring you back to, to Navan in the, 19, the late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, what was it like in Navan at that time? And I think I've talked to you before, you also spelled a year in my own hometown of Kells as well, mm. back in the, the late 50s, early 60s. Well, I grew up on the River Boyne, um, across the town from Navan. So it was a fairly uh, isolated life in some respects. Uh, I think it's fairly well documented, my my upbringing and uh, my mother was very young when she had me and the old man took off for the hills and uh, for a young woman to be a single parent at that time was uh, there was a certain shaming that went on in that and uh, she wasn't having any of it she went off to London to be a nurse and I grew up with the grandparents and um, then an aunt and an uncle so it was a it was a great childhood in many respects it's when you say it aloud or write it it sounds lonely and terrible but there was a wonderful romance there for me too and there was a certain growing up in the imagination I think and uh, I was an altar boy at the local church and uh, but 
of course, you know, when you're from a fractured home, there's always a kind of a longing and a, and a certain displacement of where you fit in in the community. Then in 1964, when she became a qualified nurse, she sent for me and I went to London and she and uh, my now stepfather, they were kissing and courting and Bill, who's been the most wonderful father to me, uh, we had a life there in South London, and I went to a comprehensive school, and I was the the token uh, Irishman, Paddy. Well, they called me Irish. They could never get their head around the name Pierce, so I was known as Irish, and I kind of, I wore it proudly. I thought, if you can't pronounce my name, fair enough, and if you want to call me Irish, fair enough, and... Uh, it was a massive school, massive. And it was, uh, you know, from going to the Christian Brothers in Navin, small, small school, to this massive, comprehensive school system, was, was, a, was a huge culture shock. And I was good at art, and I was good at writing and stories. And uh, so I, I took that with me, really. And then. And have you used, I mean, I know you're saying it wasn't particularly unhappy, but have you used, been able to use that sense of dislocation in, in your acting career? Have you brought that to your craft, do you think? Or is that one of the reasons why you went into your craft, to maybe explore something about yourself? Well, when I found acting, I found, a, I found an outlet for my dreaming, I suppose. I found an outlet for all the, the, the pain or the, the, the longing that you have as a young boy. And uh, I found a great identity with other people who are from that kind of life who are now exploring it through poetry and through dance and it was my university and suddenly I got informed with writers and I'd go down to WH Smith's on my lunch break and look through all the Penguin books and whatever books I could afford I would buy, you know, and discovered Jean-Paul Sartre. I hadn't a clue who he was, what I was reading, but it was about existentialism, whatever that meant. And so I just devoured knowledge and I tried to find myself with people who are learned and if I didn't know what to say or ask, I just stayed silent and listened. And was theatre your education? Because you went, you studied then in the, the drama centre for three years. Was that, that was the core or was that the core of your education? Well, I think the Oval House Theatre was certainly, uh, was a great springboard into it. I mean, after two years of uh, traveling and working in theater and education, doing workshops, forming a company called Theaterspiel, doing street theater, I knew I wanted to be an actor and I knew I didn't have the grounding in it. I didn't have the, the education of formal theater. So I wanted to go to drama school and I wrote away to them all. And there was a part of me that was uh, kind of above it all because it was pretty radical at that time. And it was so exhilarating to be in fringe theater. And I remember the first production, real time, the first time I was ever in a, in a theater was at the Royal Court Theater, and it was a production of Antigone uh, by a company called The Freehold. And that was directed by Nancy Meckler, and in that company was Stephen Ray. And uh, I, that night in the theater was just uh, a revelation for me. And I knew I wanted to be an actor, but I also knew I had to train. And um, I found a drama school called the Drama Center, trained, went there in 1973 and left in 76. And some of your, your earliest theatrical uh, endeavors, you were involved with uh, a Tennessee Williams play 
called the, the Red Devil Battery Sound, but you weren't originally to take the lead role in that. What happened there? Um, I got this uh, job and I was uh, understudying one of the principals in this production of Tennessee Williams, The Red Devil Battery Sign. And this wasn't one of his greatest pieces of writing. I mean, it was a wonderful piece of prose, but theatrically and narratively, it wasn't very strong. But nevertheless, it was the great man. And um, I was understudying this young fellow who was having problems in life. And I'd, I could see that, and I'd learned the role inside out. I was ferociously hungry for, for work. And they called me in one lunch break and said, do you know the role? And I said, yes. We were only into it for about a week of rehearsals. And um, they said, well, we'll give you a call this evening. And I got a call that evening, and it was to go down to uh, Sloan Square, where Tennessee Williams was staying. And uh, I read for the role and got the role. And it's, you know, it's a brutal game. Here's this young fellow who I knew was going to be out of a job, but I, it's a double-edged sword. I got the job. It was kind of the start, really. And there's a teacher of mine said, you always have to be prepared because sometimes the doors open, the door of opportunity opens, but if you're not prepared, then they'll close pretty quickly. Anyway, I got that job and... And then uh, in, from that production, I was seen by Seferelli, and he offered me a play in the West End called Philomena. But the Red Devil Battery sign was a brilliant. It was, it was brilliant for me. Um, Tennessee sent me a telegram on the first night. It was at the Roundhouse Theatre, and he said, Thank God for you, my dear boy. Love, Tennessee Williams. And it's a, you still have it? I still have it, oh, of course. <laughs> you, don't, you don't give things like that away. Those are cherished. You mentioned Zeffirelli and Philomena, but there was a, you had actually gone to the Glasgow Citizens Theatre and there was a kind of a, 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 a James Bond, Remington Steel contract scenario in microcosm there, wasn't there? You had, you had a, a choice to make and a decision to make. Yeah, Zeffirelli saw me in the production of Red Devil and uh, he was doing Philomena, but I also wanted to go up to the Glasgow Citizens Theatre, which is a fantastic theatre up there in the middle of the Gorbals. And I finally got a job up there, but then Seferelli offered me this great production in the West End, and I went to Giles Havergale, who was the artistic director of the Glasgow Citizens, and we were about three weeks into rehearsal, and I said, uh, I've been offered this great production by Seferelli, and I would really like to do it, but I, I know that I'm committed to this production. And um, he said, well, if you do that, you'll never work here again, meaning if I went off to Philomena, I would never work there again. And, uh, you know, you have to make those choices. And uh, I stayed with the Glasgow Citizens Theatre and I did the production. And about six months later, the role in Philomena came back to me. So, you know, an actor's life is always sometimes full of conflict and uh, sometimes choices, sometimes no choices. But that's the story. You then... One of the things you did was uh, a drama called, I don't know many people would remember it, uh, it was great fun, I think called Murphy Stroke, uh, made for, for television. It was about the gay future coup, or it was based on the, the gay future racing coup. Um, you played the, the racing, the trainer, Eddie O'Grady. 
Um, but that also led on to other things, didn't it? Murphy Stroke was was really the the beginning of it, and it's ironically it's ironic that it was an Irish story, and so I owe a lot of my career to Ireland in the sense that I, I, I didn't train here as an actor, I trained in England, but Murphy Stroke was a drama documentary about this racing coup back in the early 70s, and I played, as you say, Eddie O'Grady, and then from doing that, uh, I was seen by the producers for a mini-series called The Manions of America, which was about the potato famine. And I got The Manions of America because of the work that I'd done on Murphy Stroke. And then Manions of America took me to America, and I got Remington Steel. So there's a kind of a thread of embroidery here connected to Ireland. And now I have a company called Irish Dreamtime, and making films, so um, she just keeps pulling you back, I suppose. And one of the first instances in which you came to the attention in a film, even though it was a very, very small part, but it was, uh, I suppose it proves that there is no such thing as a small part, it was a non-speaking part, it was also Irish-related, and that was in The Long Good Friday. Yeah, The Long Good Friday was, uh, still is a magnificent film. It was John McKenzie and uh, Bob Hoskins, and I was playing an IRA hitman, and uh, the story took place over the, the Good Friday weekend, and uh, I really had a spit and a cough in the, in the production, but I played a part which was off stage most of the time. And then at the end of the film, there is a face put to the terror that is happening to this man in the gangland wars. And uh, it was a great film to do. It was wonderful. It was with Dara O'Malley and myself. We mm. were the two IRA fellows. But he was the driver. You wanted to be the driver. Well, uh, yeah, I wanted to be the driver because I thought I could do great kind of, you know, dramatic acting there, cinematic acting. I thought I'd get big close-ups and stuff like that, but John McKenzie said, no, you're up in the front with the gun. And it was funny, really, because it was just John McKenzie and Philip Mayhew, the DP, and Dara, or just myself, in the front. And we were driving down the Strand. It's the last, last shot in the movie. And Hoskins is hustled into this car, and suddenly this guy comes up with a gun. And I was the guy with the gun. And it's the most amazing piece of acting from Hoskins because I wasn't there. Uh, he, he just was in the back of the car and the camera was on him and I was just a piece of masking tape on the, on the camera. And this was my first experience of working in cinema, that sometimes the other actor is not there because for one technical reason or another, you have to look at a piece of tape and imagine that this is the actor you're talking to. And of course, consequently, when they came to do my close-up popping up in the front seat, Bob Hoskins was just a piece of tape on the camera box. So I never got to work with Bob Hoskins. But you um, met his masking tape. I met the masking tape. And Mackenzie was driving the car saying, all right, now, that's it. You're looking at him. You're looking at him. You've got him. That's it. You've got him. All right, you're going to kill the son of a bitch now. That's it. Yeah. Welcome back. You're listening to Rattlebag, coming to you from the Town Hall in Galway, as part of the Galway Film Fla, where we're talking to Pierce Brosnan. I think it was, it was it, uh, your wife, Cassie, who persuaded you to, to take the risk and to, to go to America. Because 
as an Irish actor, I mean, how, how Irish an actor were you in London? How identified were you as being an Irish actor, as somebody who couldn't necessarily play British roles? When I left drama school, I mean, I, it was 1976, and I went into the, the repertory mainstream there and going up and down the country, and uh, I was either going to be playing, you know, Irishmen for the rest of my life or playing Americans, and the English roles didn't seem to be forthcoming. So I, I, had, I don't know, I always had dreams of doing movies and when the Mannions of America came on TV in America my late wife Cassie said well we should go to America and I said well for God's sake I mean how the hell are we going to do that you know she'd just done a James Bond movie for your eyes only and I'd done the Mannions of America and we'd we'd, we'd bought this house in Wimbledon and um, she said oh don't worry I'll, I'll I'll find a way. And she did. She uh, took out a second mortgage on the central heating in the house. But we already had the central heating. <laughs> you know, we'd already put it in. So I went to the bank manager in Rains Park and got an overdraft of two grand. And, uh, and then the central heating people came round to the house to find out where we wanted to put the central heating in. But we already had the bloody central heating. So this man knocked on the door one day and we were covering up all the radiators and I said, hello, yeah, we just want one right here, sorry, we're just moving the furniture around. We'd like one here, you all right upstairs, darling? And she said, yes, yes. Sorry, she's just having a bath. And she was moving all the furniture around, covering up all the radiators. <laughs> so anyway, it was a scheme like that, that I got the money and went over on Freddie Laker and the back of the plane and got an agent in Los Angeles. But you had the Mannions of America. Well, I had the Mannions of America as kind of collateral there. I had something to show. And, I mean, you always have to have something to show to get the next job. Sometimes you don't have that. But in this case, I had something that was six hours of material. And um, I got an agent. And the first job, the first interview I ever went on was for Remington Steel. I got a car from Rent-A-Rec Cars. There is a company there called Rent-A-Rec. And I got this piece of old crap car which was dreadful it had one fender pulled off it had a cushion for the springs it blew up at the top of Mulholland so they um, were they, this was a, not an American company being ironic this was this a wreck was, this was a wreck yeah. this fellow had this company called rent wrecks and you could rent them for about $20 you know a day or something and the first job was uh, the first interview was Remington Steel and I met with them, and they said, would you be prepared to come over here? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. Yes, and I, the next two weeks, I went around and did interviews. They called me back to CBS Studios, and I met with more producers and went back to England. And then they called me back out to America to screen test, and I got the job as Remington Steel. And the next thing we knew, we were packing up our bags, Cassie and the two children, Charlotte and Christopher and myself, and we went over there for nine weeks, and then they picked it up for another 13 episodes, and before you know it, five years of your life has gone by, and you're on American TV. And how did you feel about the role that you were playing in Remington Steel? Maybe different after year five than year one? No, I loved it. I mean, I really enjoyed playing Remington Steel. It was a great learning experience. It was like doing weekly rep, because you, you had seven days to shoot an episode and there's 22 episodes in the year so you're going lickety split the whole time learning lines learning lines it was just it was hard graft but it was also your this tv show was on film and you're on location and i was making great money and i was able to take care of the family and you know thinking that uh, this would advance to other things and other work and 
you know, I've just been a working actor all my life. You're always hoping that uh, you have, you know, have work. And then Remington Steele, as far as you were concerned and as far as you were aware, effectively came to an end after five years. The mm. contract was not renewed. And lo and behold, Cubby Broccoli comes calling and says, hey, would you like to be the new James Bond? Mm. So that you said you'd think about it. No, I said yes. <laughs> I just said yes. I'm off to be a film star now. This is great. I've done five years of TV and this is, you know, what I came to America for. Um, but it wasn't meant to be because... Uh, Tell us exactly what happened there because timing was very important in all of that. Well, they had a clause in the contract and I suppose for any actor you should look at the contract closely. I mean, I still to this day don't look that closely <laughs> because there's so much verbiage in there and the small print. But the small print in my Remington Steele contract was that if the show got cancelled, MTM, Mary Tyler Moore, had 60 days in which to resell the show. Well, the show got cancelled after the fourth season. I was offered James Bond. I had the script by the bed. I'd done all the wardrobe fittings. I'd done all the photographs with Cubby, with the gun and everything. And we were all assured that I would get out of this contract. And Mary Tyler Moore, they tried to sell it back to NBC. They declined. ABC did, turned it down. CBS turned it down. The clock kept on ticking. Day 58 came along and Cubby said, look, you can have him for six episodes, but no more than six episodes. Day 59, they thought about it. Day 60 came... 6.30 in the evening, we thought we were home dry. The phone rang. The studio said, we want him for six episodes, but we want the option of 22. Cubby Broccoli said, no way. And by Monday, Timothy Dalton was playing Bond. So it was kind of, you know, Cassie and I, we'd kind of relocated our lives. We'd already started putting the children into boarding school in England. We were going to come back to Europe. Um, you know, you were, you were thinking ahead and living a whole other new life. But uh, it all changed on a, on a sixpence, really. And the kicker's even worse. How long did Remington Steel last? Well, I did the six episodes and then they cancelled the show. <laughs> so there you go. You know, it's just business. You know, you're in the game. Uh, it's and more than business, Piers. I mean, something like that is... I mean, surely you must have been very frustrated and very oh, angry. I was deeply frustrated. I mean, I was, you know, as happens for your partner, my wife, I think, was really gutted and she had <clears throat> kind of the great dreams and aspirations of where we should be going, etc. Like, likewise myself, but she kind of took it badly, I think. And uh, I just got on with playing tennis that summer and looking for work. You know, and you've, you've, you've said since that in retrospect you would have regretted being cast as Bond in 1986. I mean, that's okay. You can say that with hindsight as well. Well, I just look at... I was, I think, 33 years of age and uh, I've kind of always had a kind of boyish look, dare I say such a thing about myself, or a, a countenance of, you know, whatever. It's a sign of a well-spent youth. I don't know what it is. I don't know what it is, Miles. But anyway, I, you know, when I look at photographs of myself from that time, I just didn't have the, the weight to really play the role, I suppose. And uh, I think everything happens for a reason. I think you have to be very philosophical about these things and just take them with a pinch of salt and a good sense of humor and move on. You know, as much as the ego is destroyed by it, you get stronger by it too. 
And uh, it's such a game, this business. Um, and lo and behold, it came back round, you know. I, I wasn't waiting for it. I was, I thought I'll just get on with my career. And I said to my agents, I said, look, forget about the leading man roles. Just, I'm an actor. Just let me do character roles. Let me do supporting roles. I just want to work. I want to do movies. And um, well, just, I wanted to talk about coming back to Bond, but one of the roles that you did, uh, it was a supporting role. It was a lovely little camp. Well, it was more than a cameo role. It was a supporting role. That was in uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. But how? How, how difficult was it playing a straight man to someone like Robin Williams? Well, you just kind of hang on to his coattails, really. I mean, you just go wherever he's going, and hopefully you're, you're, you're nimble on your feet. I mean, there's only two men that really make me laugh in life. I mean, he's one of them, and John Cleese is the other, and I've got the, the great you know, joy now of working with both men. The piece was such a, a well-founded piece and uh, such a lovely family film and touched on, on kind of nerve centers to the heart of each family or many families that are, have been pulled asunder by separation or disenchantment of love or whatever. So for me, it was, you know, just to play it as straight as possible, you know, and playing the straight man is sometimes the best. <laughs> You, know, you don't have the weight of the world on your shoulders. It's up to the other guy, and then you can just a look, a glance, a, a gesture, kind of, you know, get in there. But so it was, it was fantastic to work with him. Does he improvise much? Does he oh, he improvises hugely. I mean, the whole line of drive-by fruiting, you know, that was a complete ad-lib. My character, he throws a lime at me. And, uh, you know, and the guy that I was playing was such a kind of, such a nerd and such a jerk. But, you know, he was, you know, he had heart, too. He, he had good intentions towards Sally Field. And... Um, it's not hard having good intentions towards Sally Field, is it, really? It's not, no. <laughs> Oh, you like Sally, do you? Do yeah. yeah. <laughs> you do. Oh. Anyway, let's pass on. Um, Good. This isn't about me. Uh, when you then got a second stab at Bomb, which I think was the, was the following year, at, at this stage, I mean, your career is now, you know, in, in films. I mean, you've already. You know, career has been very, very good on television. You know, it's really starting to go places in film. Did you have any doubts about it? Did you think, mm, I know I, I should have done it seven or eight years ago. You know, I've missed my time or whatever. Or I can, I can do better things. I can do different things. No, I, when, it, when, the, when it came round again, I mean, I heard the rumours and I heard that Tim was disenchanted by it, etc. And I tried not to pay any notice of it because having been up the aisle once, before, I certainly didn't want to put myself in that position, which is rather vulnerable. But when it did come down, and John Calley, who was the head of the studio then, well, with Frank Mancuso, and that is MGM, you know, I had meetings with them, and then I had meetings with the Broccolis, and I basically just said to the representatives, my agents, I said, if we're going to go ahead with this, I don't want any mishaps. Do not, under any circumstance, let anything fall through the cracks. And so when the phone went one day and they said, okay, you're in, then it was monumental task of doing the job and everything else just falls away and you just have this huge undertaking. And for me, because I'd been to the well once before, it had a certain resonance of, well, you know, you're a man now and you've kind of gone through an awful lot of life and, you know, some hardships and what else? You, you know, just be bold. You've got nothing to lose. Just go out there and do it. I mean, you mentioned with Mrs. Doubtfire, being the straight man was yeah. it could be a little bit easier. You didn't have the weight of the world on your shoulders. Now you've got the weight of the world on your shoulders. How do you prepare for something like that? You worry a lot, and uh, you you kind of you you ask for divine intervention. You ask for the strength to be able to do the job. 
you rely and you, you go back to the work you've done and you take your place in the sun and you shoulders back, head up and straight ahead, go in there. And were there any moments during the first, your first bond where you had any self-doubt? Can I do this? Oh. I'm sure you did beforehand, but even when you were filming. Oh, yeah. I mean, definitely. Oh, yeah. There were, I mean, I had, I, I had to have a back operation, actually, right before the film, because I'd, I'd had something which was uh, there bothering me, and I liked the horses, and I, I was, took this horse out one day, and I took a jump, and L4 and L5 popped badly this time. And it was something which I'd nursed along, and um, I had to take care of that. I had to phone the producers up and say, look, this has happened. I couldn't believe that it happened. It was 10 weeks before filming. And suddenly this huge obstacle was put in my way, a back operation. Somehow that makes you stronger too. And then you have to deal with, you have to deal with the press, and you're suddenly catapulted into the world. Uh, I remember doing the press conference for GoldenEye, and it was at this hotel in London, and the world press, you know, like this audience tonight, and maybe more people, but then cameras and global recognition. And they're asking you this, you know, the daftest questions, you know, what kind of underpants is James Bond going to wear? And, you know... That's that one, exactly, God. That's that one. So, you're kind of... Uh, you're left out there to, 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 to hang in the breeze somehow. But I had a great director in Martin Campbell, and he was, he was out there on a knife edge, and so was I, because if we'd screwed it up, you know, it was the last ditched effort for this franchise, really. They were kind of on a, they were on a, a teeter-totter scale there, really. People weren't going to the movies, so Campbell knew that it, was, it had to be great. I knew it had to be great. And there's nothing worse than a director like Martin Campbell looking you in the eye and saying, you better be good, you better be good, you better be bloody good. Of course I'm going to be fucking Don't talk to me like that. You know, so we had this kind of nervous energy. It was pretty intense. And of course it grossed more than any other had and all of the ones since have, have, have outstripped uh, the first and so on and so forth. So from that point of view, you, you, you say you are the um, Rin Tin Tin, wasn't it, who saved Hollywood. You're the dog who saved the franchise, really, in, in a way. But... <laughs> I hate Rin Tin Tin. <laughs> Rin Tin Tin? God, Miles. Um, the dog who saved Hollywood. It the was dog who saved Yeah, Nam. anyway. It's, it has been said... <laughs> that the dog from Navin who saved Hollywood. <laughs> the Meath dog who saved Hollywood. Or Bond. A mongrel. It has been said, be careful what you wish for. And obviously, this was something you had wished for. This was, uh, you know, a career path that, that you wanted. You wanted to do this kind of thing. You wanted to be, uh, you know, you wanted to be, I suppose, an iconic actor. But, you know, what comes with it? The trappings? How has it worked out? Well, I never wanted to be an iconic actor, but I suppose I wanted to be... Uh, I wanted to be a, a, a movie actor. Um, I wanted to be an actor first and foremost. And then when I was that, I wanted to be a movie actor. And now that I'm a movie actor, I want to be an actor. I want to go back to acting. Um, because, you know, I've tasted the good life of what it's like out there and that. And it's, kind of, you know, it's, it's wonderful. It's great. But now I'm at a time in my life where I have the wherewithal to make a company like Irish Dreamtime, you know, um, with a good friend of mine, Beaumarie St. Clair, and that comes with showing up and doing the job and having a bit of luck and some kind of bit of talent that you can polish and a belief in yourself to do the job. 
so you know I've kind of gone round gone round the stage a little bit in some respects with with this life of being an actor but in order to do that, in order to do what you're talking about, it suggests that you have to stop doing Bond, or can you do the two in parallel? Or, I mean, what I'm really asking is, how many more Bonds do you think you have left in you, just as an actor, as, uh, from your own point of view? Well, I think there's probably one, there is one more. Thereafter, I don't know, because, uh, you know, there comes a time when you physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, you've done it, move on. And um, I am one of many men now who have portrayed this role, and I'm sure there's some fellow out there waiting in the wings, whoever he is, who's going to take over from Robbie me. Williams. Colin Farrell. Any more names? <laughs> you know? And suddenly when you're getting the hang of it, somebody else wants to take over. But it's been a great time. I mean, it's been wonderful. And I wouldn't have been able to make something like the Thomas Crown Affair or Evelyn or The Nephew or, you know, Laws of Attraction, uh, Beau Marie and I wouldn't have been able to do it probably if I hadn't had Bond mm. under my belt. And so when you get an opportunity to, you know, star in a movie like this that gives you international acclaim, then how do you use it for yourself and how do you use it for friends and family and make something worthwhile and meaningful out of it. Obviously, one of the things that you say you've done in parallel with Bond, you've done your own projects, but I suppose the acid test is if good directors still employ you to do parts uh, other than you as a producer producing parts for yourself and for example uh, John Borman tapped you on the shoulder and asked you to play uh, Andy Osnard in The Tailor of Panama. Yes. A pretty loathsome character, was that as a, an antidote? Well I mean John Borman is a mighty filmmaker and a man who's always marched to his own drum and uh, his own sensibilities of storytelling and has always done provocative work. So when he called up and we had lunch in Malibu one day, you know, we're sitting in this little restaurant and I thought at last, you know, this is incredible. This incredible great man is, you know, he, he wants me for the tailor of Panama. And I thought, you know, character work at last. And of course, I thought he wanted me for the tailor. And he said, no, I want you to play the spy. And, uh, and kind of, I had a chuckle at that. And of course, I could see where he was going with that kind of bedevilment, me being Bond and playing this anti-Bond character. But it was wonderful to play. Osnard was uh, a kind of real stab in the heart to playing the other fella, so to speak, but yet not being disrespectful to the Bond character. It was just another aspect of that world of espionage. What film are you most proud of, of all the films you've done? Um, In terms of your performance, I mean, obviously, I think you probably would be very proud of the films that you have produced yourself I'm and that you have acted in and you have brought to fruition. Proud of, I'm proud of Taylor of Panama. Uh, I'm proud of a film called The Lawnmower Man. I'm proud of a film called Mr. Johnson, which I did with Bruce Beresford a long time ago. I'm proud of Evelyn. I'm proud of the Thomas Crown. I'm proud of the James Bond films all of them, and that I've had, you know, the longevity with it, four films. You know, I'm proud of most of the work that I've done, actually, because I've loved them all, and I've, I've enjoyed the company of many great actors and the travels and the experience and the, the knowledge I've, I've garnered from my travels on these films. I'm just amazed that I've, I've come this far and that I've had the success that I've had and that I'm still here in the game. So there's always, you know, just a, a deep appreciation of it. Any turkeys along the way? Oh, yes, yes. I mean, 
Well, you know, it's well, grey owl. I can't say was a turkey, but it didn't fly. Maybe because it was a turkey, you know. But uh, I loved doing the picture, and I met actually Richard there, Lord Attenborough, in the south of France the year before last, and we were standing round in the company of people, and Richard said, he said, oh yes, we made this film, Grey Owl. It was an absolute disaster, and I kind of looked at him and I was rather agog that he should say it in the company of people. And a kind of crestfallen as well, you know, but there you go. I mean, I, I, for me again, I don't consider them turkeys and they're, they're kind of, they're part of my life and they're kind of like certain poems in my life and certain passage of, of time and documentation of me as a man and me as an actor. So they're very personal. Um, and that they might be pulled apart by the press, well, you you kind of take the blows, but they live on, and uh, I, I cherish them all, really. I want to finish with a quote. It's actually it's from Grey Owl, um, whatever you think of it, or the critics think of it, or even Attenborough thinks of it. Um, it's something to the effect of, you become what you dream, and you have dreamt well. Is there a certain amount of Pierce Brosnan in that? Although you have been very, very tenacious, you have been very resolute, you have suffered setbacks, and you have overcome the setbacks, both personal and professional, that your success ultimately comes from from dreaming, from the, the dream that you had for yourself. The quote from Grey Owl is something which struck a chord when I read it and the night we played it in the company of many great elders up there in, in northern Ontario. And the quote is, a man becomes what he dreams. You have dreamed well. So I think for all of us here, we all have dreams and aspirations to start a business, to have good life, to have good family, to have, you know, the wherewithal to take care of our families. And uh, you always have to keep dreaming, I think. And I have been very fortunate in my dreaming and desires and wants. And uh, you, you, you know, you don't hold that lightly and uh, or tightly, really, because it can just go away. So I, I've, I've had certain blessings, I must say certain blessings and uh, you know and have still hopefully a lot of dreaming to do and uh, parts to play Pierce Brosnan thank you very much and uh, Pierce himself was in great form and as always the, the best moment came when I stopped asking questions and handed it over to the audience and this is what uh, young Paul came up with what was your favourite Bond girl that you acted with <laughs> these are the good ones yeah. Halle Berry um there's, uh, there's children in the audience. I won't tell you what some, some young gurrier said to me the other day in Dublin, but it was very funny. I, I went and bought myself a bicycle there the other day so I could go around Phoenix Park and try and stay in some semblance of shape. And I was waiting for the bicycle they were putting the wheels on it, and I went, it was the day of the derby, and I was sitting in this pub, and uh, I was having a quiet pint with, with this mate of mine, Liam, and we're sitting there watching the horses. Anyway, this young lad came by, and he said, Pierce... I just want to shake your hand. He said, that's the closest I'm ever going to get to Halle Berry's arse. <laughs> <laughs>